Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy, the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. December 8th, 1941, a day less known to history, 500 United States Army troops occupy the Walt Disney Studio in Burbank, California? What? (laughs) Whoa, Tim Allen's here. (laughs) So the idea of talking about Disney's involvement in World War II is something that you brought to the table, Will. What what is your fascination with that? Well, I think the Walt Disney Company, obviously a... uh, uh, Evil company. Evil, uh, a pretty big force, and... Mm. I mean, there's so much there in that company, even, yeah. even if you don't like it. you could. You, we could do an episode on their first three animated films. We mm-hmm. could do an episode on the Mickey Mouse cartoons. We could do an episode on uh, live-action Kurt Russell movies from the 60s. <laughs> there's so much going on. Yeah. But this period is interesting because more than any other studio I can think of, Disney turned itself over to the U.S. Armed Forces during the war. They're the studio that I associate most with wartime propaganda and it came at this period that was also like their golden age you know Mm -hmm. snow white and the seven dwarves had just come out fantasia bambi these had just come out but at this point disney was also struggling financially the workers tried to unionize much to the horror of uncle walt yeah we're a family here at disneyland (laughs) and we don't rebel against our parents but you heard right that he was very like uh, like insulted that they would rebel considering he did see them as family ha Disneyland's the happiest place on earth. What do you want? And if anybody says differently, you will be put in the gulag and never seen from again. Uncle Walt was a legendary uh, Hollywood Republican, I believe. Mm -hmm. And he also took Lenny Riefenstahl on a tour of the studio. (laughs) Did he? Yes, he did. (laughs) So um, Disney and World War II, we could approach it from multiple different angles. But I think that what we both did was we watched the two main features that came out during that period and a bunch of their propaganda shorts. That's right. Disney produced, I believe, 68 hours of propaganda and training films. Mm -hmm. First, the Navy came to them, then the Air Force, the Department of Agriculture, the Treasury. Pretty much every branch of the armed forces approached Walt Disney to make educational films. And Walt Disney was like, sure, I'll do it. Uh, I read a book about Disney in World War II that was published by the Disney Corporation. And it Ah. said stuff like, ah, Walt wouldn't even take any profit doing all this because he wanted to help his country. Nope. It has nothing to do with the fact that Disney was about to go bankrupt. So, ah, a lot of work and money coming in. Why, yes, it would help our company. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because Snow White, obviously a huge success, but then overreached with Fantasia Mm -hmm. and Bambi, also not a big success. Which, uh, yeah, it hurt the uh, coffers a little bit, but... Oh, the opportunity to make these training films was huge for him. And to be honest, Disney did stuff with training videos that hadn't really been done before because they could make it very clear through animation. So it could be like, how to clean your gun. And then they'd be like, wow, we can just use illustrations to tell these stories. A little spoonful of sugar to help your medicine go down. Mm -hmm. There's a feature that he made during this period that I think might be instructive to start with. And it's often called the most unusual feature ever released by the Disney Corporation. Mm, Song of the South would say differently. (laughs) Heck, what about Ernest Goes to Jail? Yeah, Ah, love that movie. But it is 1943's Victory Through Air Power. And I don't know how much to believe when my source is like Disney studio propaganda, Mm -hmm. but apparently Walt himself financed this movie over the objection of his 
regular distributor, RKO, because he was just so impressed by the book that it was based on. And Walt wanted to do something airplane-based for a long time. So this was an opportunity to, I, I want to say, tell this story, because what Victory Through Air Power is, is based on a book. Do you have the author's name? Yes, his name is Major Alexander P. Dasaversky. He was a Russian-born but naturalized American citizen. And the thesis of his book was that the U.S. should invest in long-range planes so we can bomb the enemy without having to go and fight on the ground. So we have Major Dusaversky in the film, mm-hmm. who... Ah, what a charisma <laughs> dynamo he is. So, you know, where is the live-action remake of this? We could get Christoph Waltz, perhaps, <laughs> yep. as Dusaversky. He hosts the film from his office, a very natural screen presence, <laughs> and he lays out his theory. Well, actually, first the movie begins with, you know, 20 minutes of a Disney cartoon, the mm. history of aviation. Which is fun. There's gags in it. It's fun. It definitely feels like something where it's like, okay, well, if this film flops, we can cut this out and release it as a short. <laughs> yep, 100%. But Dusaversky's thesis is troops, U-boats, this is outmoded technology. In France, France built this wall of land fortresses and they thought that this was going to keep the Germans out. Uh Uh-oh, Hitler actually invested heavily in air. So Hitler, first with his bombardment of air power and then with all of his tanks on the ground, were able to do a one-two assault on France and take it over no sweat. But Britain invested heavily in their Royal Air Force and this started to help turn the tide against Hitler and what Dusaversky says is, actually, we need to do this in the United States. Seems like a pretty straightforward premise. <laughs> well, I watched the Leonard Maltin intro mm-hmm. because all of these wartime movies were released on DVD, uh, Walt Disney on the front lines. And he said uh, a claim that it turned out to not actually be true. He said that after he saw this movie, Winston Churchill himself told Roosevelt to watch it. And according to Walt Disney, who told this to H.C. Potter, the mm-hmm. director of the live action segments. So we're getting this broken <laughs> telephone. Yeah, by the people that are in charge. A couple of sources removed because Leonard interviewed H.C. Potter. Mm-hmm. But Potter said there was only after Roosevelt saw the film that he committed to long-range bombing. This is not actually true. The Allied combined bomber offensive began two months before FDR saw the film. Yeah, of course, because Germany used planes to bomb and conquer places, so why wouldn't America do the same thing? Yeah, so... um, (laughs) It's not like they invented, like, teleportation out of nothing. Despite what Disney would tell H.C. Potter, it wasn't actually this film that changed the course of the war. But it's an interesting film. It's a a little boring at times. Also, once you get past that first, like, this is how airplanes came about, it's a lot of, like, graphs and arrows pointing Lenny Riefenstahl style being like ah yes we will conquer Germany and we will be triumphant I mean I wish we had a better protagonist than Alexander P. DeSaversky but what do you mean he was uh, directed by the man who <laughs> was behind the camera on Hell's a Poppin that's right the craziest film ever made veteran auteur H.C. Potter but I mean this is not a movie that you judge like a regular movie this is an ephemeral film mm-hmm. it's propaganda it was in the Disney vaults for 60 years until it was re-released on DVD. Probably because they were like, people want to watch this? Nobody wants to watch (laughs) this. This did not get put in the wonderful world of Disney TV package. This is a movie that, like, you'd be in class and they just, like, put it on to just take up some time. I did find it kind of interesting, though, watching it for this podcast and thinking about... 
uh, Disney is a propaganda filmmaker. Cartoons are good for propaganda. They're great for propaganda. When you see all those German planes and they're animated in heavy silhouette and there's ah, they're evil. a dark and stormy night behind them and the music is blaring this Wagnerian orchestral sound. Yeah, you hate these planes. And there are so many ways with arrows going across the globe um <laughs> it's such a simple premise they're trying to sell to people i it doesn't need you don't need 70 minutes to <laughs> no this. you don't okay i get it i get it long range bombing <laughs> yeah but visually they keep finding sort of new ways to convey this information mm-hmm. and, to, and to you got this globe and you got all these players on the board so we've talked a lot about the uh, straight kind of military stuff that disney was doing but they were also doing propaganda for the people, it, it, like two spoons of sugar to make it, uh, the medicine go down. I think the most famous example of this is a cartoon that was suppressed for many, many years, despite winning the Academy Award for Best Animated Short Subject. 1943's Der Führer's Face. I love that, like, somebody at Disney went, let's make a whole short where Donald Duck is a Nazi. And this is before Google Image. This was before a picture of Donald in a Nazi uniform could be used in <laughs> other other contexts. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's just kind of a goofy short where like Donald Duck uh, goes about his Nazi day in his house where everything is shaped like a swastika, like his hedges. He goes and works in the munition factory and uh, oh, what crazy wackiness he gets into. It's a dystopian vision of a world where the Nazis have taken over. And yes, even your favorite character, Donald Duck. He is not my favorite character. (laughs) Your favorite character, Donald Duck, is a Nazi now. And life is hard when you're a Nazi because your rations are very small. Mm -hmm. You get a, a a rock hard piece of bread that you have to saw with a saw and you get a coffee that's been made from one bean and instead of bacon and eggs you get eau de bacon and eggs yeah and you smell it i find it fascinating that all of the disney shorts around this period focused on letting people know that the nazi ideology is bad mm. that's what they were all dealing with like the fuhrer's phrase uh reason and emotion uh education for death chicken little mm. those are what they're all about have you seen education for death yes i have what a dark cartoon that is (laughs) yeah (laughs) where it's all about a young child in nazi germany and how the system breaks him down and makes him into a soldier who does not question any commands no longer cares about human life (laughs) until he is dead (laughs) and that's how the short ends uh, I was amused watching Der Fuhrer's face that basically the vision of Nazism it's showing us is capitalism. <laughs> yes, it is. He just works and works for longer and longer hours on a conveyor belt and he gets less and less food until he goes insane. <laughs> yep. And then, and then he wakes up giving the Nazi salute. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do a Donald. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You got it. I, I found that weird. You wake up from nightmares being like oh, doing the thing you were doing and then doing dream? the Nazi salute yeah. all, all the time. All the time. But then of course he's not a nazi he's your old friend american is apple pie donald duck and he sees a statue uh, he, he's got a little toy statue of liberty on his on his <laughs> dressing table yeah just to let the americans know he's on the level <laughs> catch my drift and he's wearing uh, stars and stripes pajamas and he grabs the statue of liberty and he hugs it and says i'm so glad to be an american and then he probably fucks it <laughs> yeah yeah, that's hundred. That's why it was banned for so long. There's actually a few seconds after it, but they trimmed it and they burned it. I watched a 
watched a couple of Donald cartoons. There's a cartoon called, I believe, Donald is Drafted, where he is drafted, but he makes a mess of being a soldier. It looks terrible being a soldier in that short. Your drill sergeant is the uh, villain from the Mickey Mouse cartoon. Yeah, uh, Pete. Pete, Pete yeah. the dog, yeah. And he wants to fly, but instead, in the ending, he uh, has to peel potatoes. That was like a big theme in these like wartime shorts, peeling potatoes, wasn't it? I remember it vividly as a kid. Every like war comedy from World War II has a gag where the drill sergeant tells you to stop marching and you keep marching. Yep. Did you know that some of the first shorts that were made for the propaganda department were for Canada to sell war bonds oh, that's and so war cool. stamps? <laughs> and that one of the big ones that Donald Duck first started was to do your taxes to help the troops. That would be the spirit of 43 where Donald gets his paycheck, I guess, from the Disney Corporation. <laughs> yeah. And he's going to go out and spend it. But then he gets... You know, an angel and a devil on his shoulder, basically. There's a Scottish Donald <laughs> who's telling him, uh, no, no, Donald, you've got to, you've got to save your money. Mm-hmm. Is that how you do a Scottish accent? Yeah, there you go. You got it. Uh, what? Is that you, Matthew Kumar? Ma- Ma- Matthew, please don't write in a letter saying how, how problematic that impression was. Uh, and then there's a- another angel on his shoulder saying you should spend it. Mm-hmm. Should he sh- save? Should he spend? Nope, you've got to pay your taxes. <laughs> Apparently, 26 million people saw this show. Yep, and it brought supposedly some people to tears because I guess they love paying their taxes. Yeah, um, and uh, Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, uh, does he pay his taxes? Nope, they find loopholes to get around that and they don't have to pay anything. Maybe he should watch this cartoon. <laughs> yeah, maybe it will bring him to tears. Or maybe he'll put it back in the Disney vault. Yeah, never to be seen again. Shh, we never said that. That never happened. Strike it from the history books. There's also a short called Commando Duck where Donald destroys a Japanese airbase. Yeah, one of the weird shorts where you actually see the character's in warfare Mm -hmm. that like Donald is being shot at by machine guns. Where was Mickey during all of this? Uh, He was too pure for that. Also, he was a communist and was about to be on the blacklist. You see, I think he probably uh, finagled his way out of the war like John Wayne did. (laughs) Yeah, bones first. (laughs) So uh, the shorts that starred animated characters were principally uh, Donald, as we mentioned, Goofy was in a bunch of war shorts and also Pluto (laughs) because I guess dogs are the first ones to be put on the front lines. That's right. It does bother me how kind of dedicated the Disney Corporation went into when it comes to World War II. Uh, Why do you think? Because they found this was the perfect opportunity to put their brand everywhere. Interesting. Disney's popular, but what if, and they did this multiple hundreds of times during the war, you send us your um, squadron's name and what insignia you want. We'll put a Disney character and you'll now have a Disney drawn insignia that you can put on your like patches that you can put on your planes. As if to symbolically assert the dominance of yeah. not just America, but American culture. What is American culture if it is Disney. not Disney? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's 100% what it was. And I mean, you look at like, I found a photo of the um, <laughs> licensed uh, Mickey Mouse gas mask for children. <laughs> so they can put it on their face oh, fuck, and I it looks like a death mask <laughs> and, like they were all in there was nothing that they wouldn't touch the one thing that weirdly didn't happen is they didn't make a world war ii feature and that's because they had one called the gremlins which was about gremlins that would dismantle american fighter pilot planes and they got almost to the point that they were animating the whole film was boarded and an executive went we can't make a movie about cute little creatures destroying American pilots. Mm. Like, it's it just doesn't work. There's a dissonance there, and they couldn't fix it. 
because that was so integral to their script, so they tossed it. Oh. And those characters appeared in a bunch of comic books, and uh, they continued to appear in Disney things, but they never had their own movie. Well, maybe they should make it now. But we also watched a Disney feature that came out during this time that is not technically World War II related. But it is a token of Pan-American unity mm-hmm. within the context of World War II. Mm. It is 1944's The Three Caballeros. Ah, my favorite characters as a child I would see everywhere and go, I've never seen anything with them in it, but I know these characters are classic friends. The Brazilian bird and the Mexican one who uh, always has guns for some reason. You know, when I was a kid, there were a lot of these Disney movies that I only sort of knew from the context of those sing-along song videos. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever watch those? I never did, no. Uh, the title song from this video was in it, and I would think, who are these other ducks? With, with <laughs> dog? Why are they Why are they Mexican? Well, the film opens... Well, one of them is Brazilian. <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry. I was going to get to that. Latin America. Uh, the film opens on Donald Duck's birthday, which he's celebrating alone, <laughs> because he sucks. Yep. <laughs> But he's got presents from his uh, friends. I I assume Mickey and Minnie were, again, off entertaining the troops. Yeah. Or or hiding out so they would not be drafted. (laughs) But he's watching these films that he's been sent by his friends about, you know, the birds of Latin America. (laughs) Yeah, what boring shorts your friend sent you. But good thing Donald drops a little acid (laughs) and starts to hallucinate crazy imagery. He's visited by his friends, the Brazilian parrot Jose and the Mexican parrot Panchito, and they sing a song about how they are the three caballeros, which I thought was great. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great song. Uh, This is a weird film where... Watching it, I was like, was this just a bunch of shorts they slapped together? Because especially for the first 40 minutes, it feels that way. They're fun shorts. You get to see one where a penguin just wants to move to a warmer climate. (laughs) Or a boy finds a flying donkey that he will then race with. And then there are some sort of educational sections about the Mexicans and their culture, and this is what a piñata is. Uh, you know, a, a very, uh, let's say, 1944 vision of Latin America. Yeah, it, it turns into a travelogue, mm-hmm. essentially, where... Uh... <laughs> Donald and his friends really want to fuck some women. You may wonder what could possibly unite uh, the 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 Americas, and what unites Horniness. the Americas, yes, is is lust. Yes. So, uh, and uh, Donald Duck would have definitely been me too after this film. <laughs> I mean, there's a there's a horrific scene where they're flying on a magic carpet above a beach, and they're looking through their through their telescope at various bathing beauties, and like Donald jumps off the magic carpet and chases after them, hands out. Stretched and squeezing. I don't think Donald would know what to do with a woman. (laughs) I mean, does he have any genitalia? Yeah, that's a good question. He has his taste runs towards human women. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I do like the animation in this film. I mean, it's... As opposed to, like, the cut-rate kind of army propaganda, it's fairly well animated, and it. I think it tries to make up with its lack of polish in comparison to Dumbo by just being as hallucinogenic as it can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, the Three Caballeros musical number or the psychedelic number towards the end, they're so <laughs> dense with gags. Yeah. And the characters are always in motion. There's a physicality, uh, especially in some of these shorts, that you usually don't associate with Disney because they were known as like, ah, they, they make the cute animation. Warner Brother does the more 
anarchic stuff. Mm -hmm. But when you watch this, you're like, ah, see, like this would have been, if I had seen this as a kid, it would have been just on the same level as Bugs Bunny because it was that crazy. Yeah. Isn't it still kind of in the vault? Like, I don't know if it was ever released properly on. I think it's been on DVD. Oh, okay. Yeah. But no Blu-ray or anything like that. I do wonder if it's going to make the jump to Disney Plus with (laughs) with all of its Mexican stereotypes. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's a historical document. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Uh, it is trying to create goodwill with these countries and was, according to Walt Disney, a massive hit in those countries when it came out. It's Walt Disney's It's All True. Yeah, that's right. The classic Orson Welles film. Can I ask your opinion on Donald Duck? Because I got into a a vicious fight this week on the internet with uh, noted filmmaker Whit Stillman. (laughs) Yep, (laughs) a vicious fight. It it wasn't a vicious fight at all. Whit Stillman, quote, I I snidely tweeted about Donald Duck. (laughs) Snidely. And if your Twitter is anything but Will. And I I was just speaking truth to power, frankly. But then Whit Stillman, who is apparently a great fan of Donald Duck, quote tweeted me no and, one can see me shaking my head and, and said how wrong i was so what did your tweet say just like the rough kind of i was just saying that you know donald's not funny you can't understand his voice um <laughs> da- daffy very funny mm-hmm. you can't understand his voice daffy proud of his nudity donald always wears the shirt yeah uh daffy also anarchist donald kind of toes the line yeah that's right so i've never liked donald duck i've always thought he was lame and Even, like, his history, the fact that he is under the shadow of his rich capitalist uncle, Scrooge (laughs) McDuck. That's right. And it feels like Donald is bitter about that, and that has kind of defined his life. He's like the bad, blue-collar kind of guy, I feel. There is a rich family tree, though, Mm -hmm. much like... uh, J.D. Salinger's Glass family. (laughs) There are the three nephews, there's... Uh, the perhaps non-canonical launch pad. There's <laughs> Dark, right. Darkwing Duck. <laughs> <laughs> but like, if you ask somebody like, what is your favorite Donald Duck moment? And I understand people love the Carl Barks comic books uh-huh. of Donald Duck. I'm not that familiar with them, but I understand like they inspired stuff like Indiana Jones. They were very pulpy and fun adventures. We're not talking about that. We're talking about like the animated incarnations of this duck. They're all lame. Yeah, right? I, I can name a half dozen Daffy uh, cartoons instantly. Right, right now. But I actually think this is partly a problem of the Disney Corporation because those Mickey and Goofy and Donald cartoons were not really in circulation much when I was a kid. No, did, they did weren't. Did you ever because, see them? No, never. I yeah. remember, I don't remember what movie it was, but there was like an animated Mickey Mouse cartoon. I know what movie it was. What movie? It was A Kid in King Arthur's Court. (laughs) And the the cartoon was Runaway Brain. And I was like, I want to see this short so bad. Yeah. And I never ended up seeing the movie. Never ended up seeing that short. I mean, Mickey Mouse, he's turning into a monster of some kind. I had the exact same experience. I still haven't seen it to this day. (laughs) And that just goes to show that like the iconography of Disney is so powerful because what was I watching that Mickey Mouse was in other than maybe like the Christmas Carol? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I mean, I went to Disney World when I was a kid and I knew who made, you know, it's like, yeah. that's Mickey Mouse. I mean, I did read Disney Adventure. Yeah. Um, obsessively because I wanted that role in the sequel to The Mask. <laughs> yes, that's right. I don't think we've ever, have we ever talked about that. Oh, yeah. The, the Disney Adventures had a, a contest that you could get, you could win a role in The Mask <clears> too, <throat> which yeah. I guess never happened. Nope. But I mean, like uh, Mickey Mouse was in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So I'm sure oh, yeah. I saw him there. Yeah. But other than that, like Disney and World War Two is a great example of what they were really good at, which was 
imprinting the idea of these characters mm-hmm. without having any of the content that you feel an attachment to because you're like, oh, I like this. Yeah, I don't think anybody really thinks, do I like Mickey Mouse? No. They like Mickey Mouse because Mickey Mouse is always present. Yeah. And, and he's smiling. Yeah, he's and why of... would you dislike Mickey Mouse? You have nothing to associate, yeah. even though that I'm sure there's tons of stuff that is terrible involving Mickey Mouse. Oh, but yeah. Disney just, shh, they put it away. You don't see it. So then they can bring out the new thing. It's weird that they never did a Mickey Mouse feature. Yeah. I guess maybe there's just nothing there. I guess kids today like Kingdom Hearts. That's <laughs> yeah, where that's they right. find out about these characters. <laughs> yes, where the uh, Final Fantasy RPG and you get to team up and find the 101 Dalmatians. Huh. But I wonder if Disney would have the place that it has today if it hadn't gotten involved so strongly in World War II. It's an interesting question because you think of Disney and you think it's an American company. It's American as apple pie. Uh, and that and that's good for them. They want to give that impression. And why is that? And it's because, like we said, the imprint is there. Like, people love Warner Brothers, but Warner Brothers is not a... You're not like, ah, yes, the classic Warner Brothers characters, Bugs Bunny. No, people just think of Bugs Bunny unattached to anything else. Mm-hmm. And Disney just feels like this national religion. Mm-hmm. So this episode is brought to you by the Disney Corporation. Yeah. (laughs) Or at least listen to it until it gets taken down. And I'm just sorry that uh, Minnie Mouse died on the battlefield. (laughs) Yeah, she was drafted. Do we have any letters this week? We do. As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And the first letter is from Graham Blackbaby, and it goes, Harry Lime Radio Show. Hey, guys, loved your episode on Carol Reed, but I was shocked to hear Will call the Harry Lime Radio Show hacky. As a huge fan of the series, I think Wells delivers fun, digestible radio dramas that will hold up really well today. I would honestly listen to Lime's immoral grifter monologues all day. I highly recommend checking out more than the first few shows if you ever feel like giving it another shot. Thanks for the great show, Graham. I'm always amazed what things I say spark somebody up to be like... provoke defenders. I didn't realize that the lives of Harry Lime, the radio show that was spun off from The Third Man and that featured Orson Welles' reprising his role i didn't realize that there was a dedicated fan out there i will say i've listened to quite a bit of the lives of harry lime over the years Mm -hmm. not in any um uh, obsessive detail uh, yeah um and i have enjoyed it yeah i think you can't you can't not you just listen to wells voice and you're like ah it feels nice some some rollicking adventures uh yeah i i'm sorry i should not have insulted the lives (laughs) of harry lime you can never call anything hacky ever again and you know the Lives of Harry Lime radio show did inspire Wells' film, Mr. Arcaden. Mm, which we should do as a Patreon episode oh, we should. Uh, coming up. To. Because yeah. that's one that, uh, there's a lot to talk about that one. Yeah. All right. So uh, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact us at Podcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon, we went back to a topic we've already done, Lucho Fulci. And this time we tried to do him the justice that he deserves. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to revisit at some Lucio Fulci movies and check in on where I and perhaps also Justin were in our Fulci fandom. It's weird that like when we did an episode on him was back in the day when we would do two filmmakers in one episode yeah. which seems unfathomable now. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were still working out the kinks of yeah. the podcast. Back in the, uh, uh, as one um, Discord <laughs> person said, you can hear the disdain in Will's voice of having to do the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Which is funny because I was not holding a gun to your head. I know. I, I had know. you chained up to the radiator. There was there was clearly part of me that wanted to do a podcast. But you're like, what if I'm uncool if I do this and people call me lame? I mean, yeah, <laughs> you may be hitting on it. <laughs> yeah. uh, that is right the nail on the head. And now look at me. I'm the king of podcasts. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Nobody in Toronto has more podcasts than me. So next week... We're going to do a comedian auteur again. It's fun to talk about them. But it's not just a comedian auteur. It's one of the original bad boys of mid-century art house cinema. <laughs> it's Mr. Jacques Tati. What? Jacques Tati? I'm going to be honest. I had never seen any of his films. Oh, wow. Until last week, I sat down and I watched Playtime. And oh man, did I love it. Oh, fantastic. Have you seen Playtime? Uh, yes, I have. That, what a masterpiece it's that is. It's a great film. I remember a few years ago, someone was so excited because the Tiff Lightbox played it in 70 millimeter. Mm-hmm. And he came back and was like, ah, it's boring. I didn't like it. That is difficult for me to understand after watching the movie. I think maybe you just have to know what it is before you go. And away. I think, and for people that don't know, Jacques Tati was like a Charlie Chaplin-like figure. He had his own character. Uh, He made a bunch of movies. But as he kind of went along in his career, he had certain ways that he wanted to approach comedy, ways that had never been done before, and that kind of bankrupted him in a way. And Playtime being his magnum opus, which... I, if you have not seen the movie, I would definitely recommend checking it out. Criterion released an amazing Jacques Tati uh, Blu-ray box. But it is like nothing I have ever seen. A film that when you watch it does not tell you where to look in the frame. Yes. Because there's so much going on that you cannot focus on one particular point. It's like a Where's Waldo yes. kind of drawing. Where's Hulo? Yeah, Where's Hulo? And the film is so smart and funny. I'm excited to check out his other stuff. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Fantastic. So until then, my name's Jonathan Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Just want to interrupt briefly here to thank Felix Dombinsky and Travis Cody Johnson for becoming Patreon subscribers. We really appreciate it. And also to remind you to follow us on Facebook at the Important Cinema Club group and on Twitter at IMPRT Cinema Club. Recently, a tweet came out and it was an image from Game of Thrones that said, this shot is brilliant and should be shown in any film study class. And what came out of that was obviously a widespread meme. Uh, but, the shot was not brilliant. Uh, sure. It whatever. was fine. It, it was, was fine. fine. <laughs> but like, what came out of it was two things. One, a hilarious meme where people could <laughs> post like goofy photos from movies with that caption. And two, people kind of... I don't remember who was the person who retweeted and, been, and said something like, this is not a beautiful shot. This is lame. Why would you tweet this? Essentially, like, a weird form of snobbery. I think it, it kind of went along the lines of, like, hasn't this person ever seen a Martin Scorsese film or something like I that? I was a little sad when I saw that the person only had 100 followers. The yes. They did that first tweet where it's like, okay, this is, like, just an ordinary guy who doesn't know Yeah, just know tweeting what, something. Doesn't know what film studies And is. then somebody retweeted it and just, like, bagged on him, yeah. which drove it crazy. But it's an point. irresistible meme. <laughs> yes. Uh, the winner of this contest was definitely Peter Koplowski, who said, I would like to tweet an image from Don't Let the River Beast Get You, but I can't not for it would be a spoiler. I know what the image is. (laughs) Yes. And it got me thinking about film classes, something that I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast before, but it's something that I've thought a lot about in my life only because I've never really taken any film classes or film study classes in university. Oh, okay. I've taken one and I hated it. 
with a passion. What was it? Was it like intro? It was uh, intro to yeah. film. So like they put on bicycle thieves in a class of like a thousand people. But it was my, my distaste mostly came from the TA that I had. Okay. And his snobbery. I really did not enjoy intro to film class. Mm-hmm. I was a film studies major at U of T and intro to film class was tough because it's it was hard uh it's not You're a, like oh, I already know all this, you fools. I mean, it's not a ideal environment to watch some of these movies in. You know, I, I lied. I did take a second uh, film studies class, and I took it. Uh, it was by the in- by internet, and I was taken up for plagiarism charges. Oh no! People said you could not have written this article, and I was like, I'm just a brilliant writer, and it wasn't an issue because I hadn't plagiarized anything. Oh, good. It was just from me. So I remember seeing Bergman's persona in uh, in Intro to Film. You know, not, Did you see it over all the laptops that were open? <laughs> yeah, basically that was the experience. And at Innes Town Hall at that time, whenever anybody would open the door, it would just put light all over the yeah. screen. So it's like... Fuck. And you're not even watching it like on 16 millimeter no, at it's this a point. DVD. It's a DVD that they're playing. At nine in the morning. So, you know, not, not, not a great way to experience that film. And on the way out, I overheard somebody say, that was the biggest waste of time I've ever seen. <laughs> Which I feel like if that's your reaction to that movie, maybe film studies isn't for you. I mean, film studies is the easy class to do yeah. because you're like hey all i do is watch movies right and anybody can take intro to film yeah and then they find out that they they're not actually gonna like it mm-hmm. i remember two or three things i know about her not a big hit with the class <laughs> or, uh, that's one of the fun ones experimental film week not a big hit uh paul sherritt Godar makes films <laughs> that you can do shots on people's backs and you don't see their faces okay there was actually a great moment in that intro class where somebody asked the prof about two or three things I know about her. If the movie isn't entertaining, mm-hmm. then what's the point? Because and, <laughs> yeah. and and then the prof, I thought quite cleverly, said, well, sure, entertainment may not be the primary purpose, but take a pen. The pen's primary purpose might be writing, but it can also be used to scratch your back. You can also use it to throw at people. Wow, that is a great analogy. Not bad. <laughs> so another problem that I think I have with the film studies classes I had is that I have never been inspired by a teacher in my life i've just had shit teachers across the board yeah, sorry to hear that and so it's difficult for me to like listen to somebody drone on about a film that they've taught 20 years of <laughs> and like there's no passion there right because they have talked about it so much i liked film studies the further i got into mm-hmm. it i thought i took a documentary class that was uh, interesting because you could also have interesting conversations with the class about the movies by the time you get in upper years people are a little more serious about being there oh is there less people who keep raising their hand to talk and you're like no i don't want to hear what your opinion is i mean i'm sure that was probably me <laughs> Yeah, probably. I was probably very full of myself. (laughs) (laughs) As you're sitting there in film 101 being like, I'm definitely film 401 by now. I've seen Chunking Express before. (laughs) I'm a genius. Quentin Tarantino presents Chunking Express. I remember on the first, uh, okay, the first... Uh, TA mm-hmm. or the first tutorial for intro to film. Oh, did were you like very defensive? No, we all had to say as an icebreaking exercise what our favorite movie is, <laughs> which is not something I wanted to do because yeah, really, well, because you just say a movie people don't know. But I don't want to do that. I don't want to have to be like, oh, well, it's this. Or, so you, know. you said I married an axe murderer. <laughs> 
You know, I said I said Taxi Driver, which okay. was not my favorite movie, but I also thought it was the most neutral choice in that context. I remember, I don't remember how old I was. I must have been 13 or maybe even younger than that. There was a program in my class that like I got to go to university and essentially be taught by a TA mm. for a week in film. And he showed us the... Um, some scenes from Taxi Driver, and I went, "Hey, can I see that like ending again? That uh, like the climax?" And he's like, "No," and I was like, "Huh? W- why not?" He's like, "You got to watch the whole movie oh, if you want to experience God. it." Oh. So my experiences with TAs have, has been awful, and they've all been bespectacled bald people. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sorry you had that experience. I will say that you know, taking a film theory class. I'm very grateful that I did because Mm. you learn a lot of different ways to approach films. Uh, It's like taking a philosophy class. You learn a little bit about like Baudrillard. You learn about Siegfried Krakauer. So, I mean, the problem that I had with philosophy class and by extension film is that (laughs) when I would be learning these concepts and it would come time to write an essay, I'd be like, I don't have anything to say that a million people haven't said before. That's not what an essay at school is about. It's yeah. not about breaking ground. It's about regurgitating Robin Wood's theory of the progressive. That's what I mean. It's the, about regurgitating the, action, the thing. Yeah. So I saw no value in it or show like, I understand like, Oh, just show that you understand this concept. Yeah. But I'm like, okay, I could, I understand it. I just told you. I mean, I was not thrilled about writing school essays either, <laughs> yeah. but I, I did it because I had to. Hey, it, my, the only, uh, maybe not the only, but my Jackie Chan essay, I got, a C minus, I think. And he said, this would be okay to publish in a zine, but Ouch. not a school essay. I mean, at the time I was like, I don't sound like an insult to me because I hate academic work. <laughs> and you love zines. I do love zines. So what were the other classes that like sparked your imagination though, other well, than your documentary one? Oh, well, there were a lot that I liked. I, I liked the cinema and authorship class. Mm-hmm. We watched a bunch. It was four different directors that we studied. There was uh, Godard, Almodovar, uh, Usman Semben and uh, a fourth one that I'm forgetting <laughs> and read all about the auteur theory yeah. and all that. That sounds like fun. Oh, Howard Hawks was the other one. Uh, yeah, that sounds yeah, like yeah, a fun class. Yeah, Wish stuff. I could have taken it. Uh, the horror film was okay. Yeah. You know? I mean, if it's intro, it's probably pretty dull, right? Well, what was interesting about it was the teacher who taught it, I don't sense that she was a, a great horror film fan or anything. So she had a sort of objectivity towards the subject mm-hmm. that I thought was interesting. Eh, why can't you get people who like it and can also be objective? Um... I don't know. <laughs> Listen, they're tenured. They the have to teach classes. Thing is, I've heard so many people who like horror films. Yes, that, I understand. Yeah. Bet somebody who doesn't. Yeah. But then, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, so you finished as a film studies major, That's right? That's right. Uh, I finished as a film studies major. And you know what's funny? When I was actually at school, I hated doing the readings. Mm. I would skip them as often as I could. And then almost in the minute I stopped going to school, it was like, ooh, I want to read more Andrew Saris. You know? <laughs> uh, Andrew Saris, though, he's fun to read. He yeah. doesn't read like an academic Right. I'm looking back to my cinema and authorship class Mm -hmm. for that one. Yeah. But if I ever have to read, like, I've talked about this before, when you pick up a book and you're like, oh, man, Hong Kong horror cinema. How is this not going to be good? And you're like, published by the University of, ah, fuck. In this essay, I'm going to describe. I I love that. (laughs) I love that structure. In this essay, I will describe. That's like, (laughs) that's like coming home. And it's like a review. It's like an essay on Godfrey Ho. (laughs) Like, oh my God. Were you you involved with SINSU, the um, film screening organization of University of Toronto? No, I only went to the screenings. Mm -hmm. But those were special screenings, right? Oh, they were wonderful. Yeah. And now that doesn't really exist anymore. Well, now they play, you know, Bend It Like Beckham on a DVD. What do you think happened? What do you think happened? in like film studies 
Because, like, these people are obviously film study students, but that passion and the drive to discover more doesn't seem to be there anymore. God, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't want kids be, these I days. I don't want to be a kids these days thing, but I also know that flat fees were instituted at University of Toronto shortly after I graduated, so you had fewer students who were, like, sticking around for 10 years after, you know, mm. d- doing one course a year. Yeah. So I, I feel like perhaps certain of these clubs were funded a bit by that. <laughs> by the people who had been there for 10 years. Yeah, and, you know, had developed tastes. Yeah. Oh, so you think they're just too young and they don't have that taste yet. Probably, yeah. If you're in Sinsu and you're listening to this, you guys have an amazing archive that you don't use. Mm. Use it! <laughs> you fools, use it! 